people well. Let me reiterate what Steve said earlier. We're super happy that you're joining us here today, especially those friends and family members who are joining us for the first time. We're starting a new series today, but I don't even want to call this a series as much as I want to call this an exploration. And we're going on a journey over the next five weeks to try to unlock or try to discover the answer to a question that Christians and people have been asking for hundreds and hundreds of years. And in order to explain what the question is, I want to kind of go back in time a little bit and see if you remember a game show called Deal or No Deal. Who remembers this game show? Okay, some of you remember, not everyone. Okay, but most of you remember. The premise was pretty simple, all right, just like most game shows. It's, it's kind of like a, the let's make a deal for you old school people, similar concept, where a contestant is presented with 25 suitcases. And in those 25 suitcases is different dollar amounts, all right? And one of them has $1, and one of them has, you know, $100, $1,000, uh, $10,000, all the way up to $5 million. And the goal is to choose the suitcase, okay, with the $5 million. That's kind of your hope that, uh, on getting on there. So you choose a suitcase at the very beginning, and that becomes your suitcase. And then throughout the game show, if you remember, is then you would start to choose other suitcases to eliminate. So you say, okay, I chose suitcase number five. Let's see what's behind number 10. And then number 10 was the dollar one, okay? So then the banker calls you and says, okay, I'll give you $100 for your suitcase. Take it or leave it. So you say, no, leave it. And then you uncover another suitcase. And then that suitcase was, you know, $5,000. So you see some of the smaller ones going. So you realize, oh, mine may have the 5 million. And you keep playing this game and you got to decide at what point do you sell your suitcase? I was watching one one time, and the lady came down, or it was a man, I'm sorry. It was a man he came down to. He had $5 million up on the board, okay, and $1 up on the board, and then like 300000 on the board. So he knew that his suitcase had either $1 or $5 million or $500,000. And then the banker would call and say, I'll give you $600,000 for your suitcase. What would you do? Would you take it or not take it? And some of you say, uh, me, I, I play it safe, man. I take the 600 and I run. But he kept going and kept going and kept going. His wife was there. She wanted to divorce him. She said, if, I'm leaving you if you don't take the $600,000 because she didn't want to end up with $1, okay? He ended up playing and eventually he decided to keep his marriage, okay? And he took the $600,000 and inside his suitcase was $5 million. And it was one of those, yes, we got the 600000 No! Well, we are going to play a similar game here today, but we ain't talking about money. We're talking about something more valuable than money, more valuable than $5 million even, because what we are talking about is the church. We are going to play the same game over the next five weeks, but our mission is not to find a suitcase with $5 million or $10 million, but to find a suitcase that has inside it the church. Every suitcase has a church, but I'm talking about the church. And when I say the church, I'm talking about the church that Jesus Christ started 2,000 years ago. The church that started in Jerusalem, and there was guys who was dressed like me and called themselves the apostles. The church that we read about on the day of Pentecost, and we talk about the birth of the church. I want to find that church. And I want to see, does that church exist? Because there are many, many churches around, and many people say that we are the church of Jesus Christ, and we are the church of this, and we are the first of that, and that... And I want to do an unbiased analysis and see, does that church, which we read about in the New Testament, 
A, does that exist today? Or they're only imitations? And B, where can I find it? Last week, for those who are here, we talked about the importance of believing, but not just believing, but believing the right thing. You remember when I said that believing is not enough. We must make sure that we, what we believe in is the truth. So to believe in something that's not true is of no value, is not believing. And I'm going to say the same thing when it comes to the church. I'm not looking for a church. I'm looking for the church. And I want to see over the next five weeks if that church exists. Now, right off the bat, some of you don't know me, so you're going to say, here, you're going to start condemning and start saying bad stuff. No, that's why I actually like the game show model that I chose in the beginning. That's why I want to stick with that. Because I'm not here to say anything bad about anybody's church or any other church right down the hall or anywhere else. I'm not saying anything about any church. But what I want to talk about is the church. And where can I find that church? The church. In the game show, that lady, like I said, walked out with $600,000. That's not bad to walk home with $600,000 for doing nothing. And I, that's why I'm going to say is there are many churches out there. I'm not going to say any of them are bad. Each one provides value. But what I'm saying is I'm going for the jackpot. And I want to go for the $5 million. And I hope you're saying the same thing. Is don't just tell me there's value here and there's value here and there's value here. And every church, anyone who calls himself a church has value. Okay, that's great. But what I want to talk about is the church, that jackpot church. And I hope you'll join me on this same journey to see if we can find the suitcase, the $5 million suitcase that contains inside it the church that we read about in the book of Acts. The church that Jesus was directly connected with. The church that started back 2,000 years ago. Does that church still exist today? And if so, where can I find it? The key to this game is, is, is agreeing with me on this one principle up front. And again, I'm not saying this in a derogatory way towards anybody or anything. Okay, and y'all see, if you give me a chance here and you listen to me, you'll know that I'm not saying anything bad. I'm not going to talk about any other church in this whole series except the only church that I know, which is my church. I'm not talking about anybody else because I'm not an expert in anybody else's churches. But you have to agree with me to this, that when Jesus started the church hundreds of years ago, 2,000 years ago, he didn't start churches. He started the church. And the church, in the original intent, was meant to be one, not many. You have to agree with me on that principle, that that was Jesus' original intent and design, and then you'll see why that's important as we kind of go through here together. Let me give you the summary of the series, and then I'll unpack this sentence over the next rest of today and the rest of these few weeks. The Orthodox Church is, you know the answer is going to be the Orthodox Church. The Orthodox Church is the original Christian church established by Jesus Christ himself upon the foundation of the Apostles. That's my hypothesis statement, okay, or my opening statement to the jury. Okay, I'm watching this, uh, this OJ miniseries. I don't know if you're watching this OJ miniseries. So I'm, I'm li- reliving like the Johnny Cochran days and all this kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm back in this stuff right now. But I'm only in, uh, I'm only in part three because don't ruin it for me, okay? Even though I think I know how it ends, but you know what I'm saying? So this is my opening statement. Okay, my opening statement to the jury is that the Orthodox Church is the original Christian church established by Jesus Christ himself upon the foundation of the apostles. I want to explain my reasoning behind making that statement, and I want you to see whether or not you agree with me by the end of this series. Now, first, let me explain what this is not saying. What I'm not saying, listen very carefully to me, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying that only people in the Orthodox Church go to heaven. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the Orthodox Church is right and everybody else is wrong. It's not what I'm saying at all. 
In the same way that I'm not saying that $4 million is bad and only $5 million is good. That if you walk out with $4 million, you should be depressed and miserable and be in a bad state of mind. I'm not saying it that way. I'm not saying that anybody else is wrong. I'm not saying we're the only ones right. I'm not saying we're the only ones going to go to heaven. But what I am saying is that Jesus didn't start many churches. The principle of the church, we can see when Jesus spoke in John chapter 10, verse 16, and other sheep which I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. They will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's the principle. The principle, if you know anything about shepherding, is one shepherd to one flock. If you have multiple flocks, you need multiple shepherds. That's, that's the definition of a flock. One flock, one shepherd. And the church is meant to be the same. One flock and one shepherd. We all claim to have the same shepherd. So therefore, we must agree that the, the, the way it's supposed to be, and I'm going to tell you why it's not that way, but the way it's supposed to be, agree with me, one flock to one shepherd. Said another way, what I want you to start to think in terms of is do not ask yourself the question, is this a church? Ask yourself a question, is this the church? And hopefully you can agree with me that a church doesn't mean necessarily the church. And I'll give you an example. You all agree with me. And again, I'm not bashing anybody. Well, there I am specifically bashing these, but I won't give you their names. I found one church website, and it won't take you very long to look for it online. You'd find it in two seconds. Okay, I'm not a, it didn't take me very long. I just did a quick Google search. I found one website of a church, and I tell you, I won't tell you the name of the church, but their website was, their address was, godhatesblank.com. And the blank was a slur, a derogatory slur towards homosexuals. And that's their website. And they are a church. And I tell you, I am a, you, you can go look it up. They going by, we are a church. There's another one, another church, that their tagline, I won't, get, I won't tell you their name or where they're located, but they're like under their logo, said, we are conservative, godly, Republican, and unstoppable. A church? Yes. The church? Unlikely. <laughs> Again, I don't know them. I, I just found their website, okay? My point is this. My point is anybody in this country can call themselves a church. And just because someone puts the word church next to their city name doesn't make them the church. And just because someone says, my title is this and this is my church, doesn't make them the church. I'm not bashing anybody. I'm bashing them, but I'm not bashing anybody else in general, what I'm saying is a church does not equal the church. Their church, you know, in this country, anyone can be a church. There's a church of Satan. Did you know that? Anyone. You can go, you can go today to the courthouse and say, I register the first uh, church of Satan. And anyone can be a church. So just the word church makes you a church, but does not make you the church. And I think you agree with me. The church, this is the church. This is the church, Ephesians 2.19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's the church. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You see what Jesus, or what St. Paul does in this verse? What he was saying is, I want you to be household of God, family of God, the church. Okay, how do I do that? He instantly says, in order to do that, slow down and go back. Go back. Go back to, I want to be the church of Christ. Then go back to Christ. I want to be the church of the apostles. 
go back to the apostles. And even for us, we're not even going back to the apostles. We're in Christ only. We're also including the prophets in there as well. Because the church, as we'll see in a little bit, is way before even the New Testament. Because the church is the family of God, the household of God. And what he's saying right here is, this is who we want to be. We don't want to be GodHatesBlank.com. We don't want to be conservative and Republican and unstoppable, or whatever it may be. We don't want to be just church and knows anybody, anything. And just so you know, I'm not endorsing any political whatever, okay? I'm not saying nothing, okay? Don't, don't, nobody misquote me or nothing. We want to be church of Christ. And that's why one of the things that I'll say, okay, and again, I'm not talking about anybody's church. I'm talking about my own church, is that when I stand in front of you and I say this church and I say my priesthood, as a priest, I can date, or I'm sorry, I can link my priesthood and my authority and my church directly and tangibly to Jesus Christ and his apostles themselves. Tangibly, not just spiritually. I don't say I was just ordained spiritually by God or anointed by the Holy Spirit. I say I was ordained as a priest, given my authority by somebody who was ordained by somebody, 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 who was ordained by St. Mark, the evangelist, okay, who wrote the second evangel, uh, gospel, who was, St. Mark received his authority where? From Jesus Christ himself. So my authority, tangibly, maybe not tangibly, directly, un unbrokenedly, comes from Jesus Christ himself. The goal of this series, the goal of this journey, is to discover what is the Orthodox Church and how the Orthodox Church is, like I said, that original church, established by Jesus Christ himself upon the foundation of the apostles. And what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to take four subjects which I see the most amount of questions on in the church. And we're going to look at these four subjects, and we're going to approach them and see, hey, you know what? What did Jesus teach about this subject? What did Jesus' disciples teach about this subject? What did Jesus' disciples' disciples teach about this subject? We're going to look at the, the big one next week, okay? The, the don't miss one next week, because this is the foundation for everything. We're going to talk about tradition. We're going to see, what is tradition? What did Jesus think of tradition? What did St. Paul think of tradition? What did the New Testament writers think of tradition? What did their immediate disciples think about tradition? What, what's the view? And let's, let's compare that to the modern view of tradition. We're going to talk about the saints, specifically going to talk about St. Mary. And we'll talk about, there's lots of different opinions about who is Virgin Mary and what is St. Mary and what's her role. We're going to see, well, what did, what did Jesus teach about St. Mary? What did the New Testament writers teach about St. Mary? We're going to talk about how we worship. Because you see today in the landscape of Christian churches in the world, there's a lot of variation on how people worship. We're going to talk about it and see from a biblical and, and, and just kind of a, a historical perspective. And then lastly, we're going to talk about salvation, our view of salvation, and see how does that fall in line with the early Christian church and what they taught about salvation versus today. And just as a catch-all in case I miss any topics, I, I had really had to wane this one down because I could have made this 10 or 12 weeks, but we said five would be enough. The bottom of your handout, you'll see a, a phone number where you can text questions to that number. The very end of the series, after we finish up, I'm going to hold a special Q&A session where anyone is welcome to join. Text me the questions in advance. As we go through the series, text your questions there. We'll accumulate all those questions, and I'll stay as long as you want me to to answer whatever questions it is that you may have, okay, in case they don't fit in there. But what are we going to do today? That's all starting next week. Today what I want to do is I want to take a step back look at a big picture. I want to look at the big picture of the church and how the church was designed and what the church is supposed to be. And before we get into like, like everything, everything in the church has a God part and a human part. The God part is the theory and the perfect. The human part is usually the messed up part. So let's kind of start with that human part. 
Let's look historically at the church and see how the church got to from Christ. Here's Jesus Christ. And then here's the landscape of the church today. Let's see how it got from there to there. Because if we don't go backwards and study our history, we're doomed to repeat it, right? That's what we, that's what we learn in history class. History repeats itself unless we learn from our lessons. How did we get here? Jesus started the church, one flock, one shepherd. There was one church. And we'll say roughly, even though I'm about to disagree with this statement, but just for the sake of argument, the church started in the year 33 AD. We'll use that as our timeline, even though, like I said, I can look at the church in a bigger perspective. 33 is when Jesus died, crucified, buried, rose, ascended, sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That's when the church started functioning, at least in the shape that we see today. When the church first started, the church was one. And yes, they started to go to different locations. It started in Jerusalem, but then after Pentecost, some people went over to Rome. Some people went over to Antioch. Some people traveled even to Asia. Some people started to go in different directions. They were one church, but many locations. Now, because there were many locations, sometimes there were disagreements. So how would they solve it when there was a disagreement? Each one do their own thing? No, they would reunite together in what we call ecumenical councils. And the first three centuries of Christianity was known as the era of the ecumenical councils. Someone over there in Rome said that Jesus is not the son of God. Wait, 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 bring it back in. Let's all get together and say, wait a minute, is he son of God? Didn't he tell the son of God? Yes, he's the son of God. You people in Rome, you believe us that he's the son of God or else you're outside the church. Okay, we're fine. And some people over here in Antioch said, well, maybe um, the Holy Spirit isn't really God. Said, no, no, wait, bring it all in. Okay, family meeting, huddle right here. What's going on? This guy said this, this guy said this. Okay, send them back out once we decide the truth. That was the first three centuries. One church, many locations. The divisions in the church started the first division, major division, I should say, is in the year 451, which is there was a council that took place in a city called Chalcedon. And during that time, I won't get into the details, it doesn't really, it's bigger than our topic here today, but this was where the first split in Christianity took place. And from this split, there was, began to be two families in Christianity, and the two were not in communion with one another. There was a family called the Chalcedonian, and the Chalcedonian means those who accepted the council of Chalcedon. And then there's the non-Chalcedonian, those who reject what happened in Chalcedon. We, in the Coptic Orthodox Church, are part of that second half, that non-Chalcedonian, along with the Indian Church, Ethiopian Church, and a few other churches. The top half, okay, the e is also called the Eastern Churches, and that's your Greeks, your Russians, your Antiochians. Those are kind of the big dogs, okay, when it comes to the Orthodox Church. What caused this split? You can read all kinds of books about this split, but I'll tell you, the majority of it was politics not theology. The worst thing that ever happened to the church was when the church and the government became connected. When the church and the government came, became connected, what you started to have is, I'm in this church and you're in this church, and you're friends with your emperor and I'm friends with my emperor. You're the patriarch and I'm the patriarch over here, and we're one. But now you're going to war and I don't believe in your cause, so I'm not going to go to war with you. So what happens is you tell your emperor, I'm sorry, you tell your patriarch, you're the emperor, you tell the patriarch, those guys don't, aren't fighting with us. Excommunicate them from the church. And we say, we're not, you're not going to excommunicate us because we excommunicate you. And we're not going to even wait for you. And all the time, politics started to mix with religion, and that's what caused all the problems. Okay? There are theological and dogmatic things wrapped around it, but if there was never political issues, there would have never been theological issues. Trust me on this. But what happened is, 
Once the patriarch and the emperor, excuse my expression, were in bed together, and the patriarch and the emperor were in bed together over here, then everything got mixed with everything. The church was united when? When the government was against the church. When the church was persecuted and the church remained true to its faith, we don't care about politics. We don't care who fights with who. We don't care about none of that stuff. That's why the church, our home church, coming from the Middle East, from Egypt, has always remained pure because we've never mixed with the, with the government. In fact, we've always been a persecuted church for so long. That's what's kept the faith pure as opposed to other places. But that's kind of my editorial. We'll leave that aside. These two churches right here, they split. Then the bottom half, the non-Chalcedonian, for the rest of history to today, nothing really happens with them. These are kind of the little persecuted church that kind of kept to themselves and kept their mouths shut, okay? The top half is where all the action takes place. And the major event that happens in the year 1054, which you probably read about in church history books, which is called the Great Schism. And that is where the church in Rome, remember I told you there were different locations. The church in Rome said, we disagree with you guys about this. And they got together and they discussed it. And the end discussion, yes, there were some politics mixed in here as well. There's always politics. But here there was also like a theological thing as well. And this is where the church in Rome added something to the faith in the creed that was not existing before. If you'll notice here in my diagram, the split in the bottom between the Orthodox churches, they both kept going in the same direction. Why? Because they didn't change the faith. And we know that because even after 1,500 years of not speaking with each other, all right, the faith is the same today. And anyone will tell you that. Okay, and they're, they're trying to reunite the churches because the faith is the same. It's just kind of some drama that took place. But when Rome split off, Rome added something that the rest of the Orthodox world disagrees with. And again, I'm not saying right or wrong, but I'm saying fact. Okay, they added something in their theology, which we don't agree with. And then from Rome in the 1500s, that's where it all kind of hit the fan. Okay, and that's basically where you have all kinds of different people breaking off. Okay, that's the time of the Reformation. And as you see in my diagram here, some of the churches went further away from the straight line. Some went closer to. Basically, once you hit the 1500s, the landscape got skewed, and now it was kind of every man for himself. But this is kind of where the history comes from. Now, you're sitting there and saying, wait a minute. How in the world can I trust a church like this? How can I trust a church that you said politics and wars and name-calling, and I excommunicate you, and you can't because I excommunicate you, and sticks and stuff. Like, what's going on here? How can I trust? How can this be the church of Christ? Like, I, I don't want to have anything to do with a church like this. Well, I will tell you this. The church certainly has flaws. No doubt the church has flaws. But I'll tell you that the flaws of the church prove its authenticity, not negated. You know why? What would a church with no flaws be? It'd be dead. The only thing with no flaws means something that's not alive. And I say to you that the church is not a museum. The church is not a computer program. What the church is, is a living body. And the word that I like to use and that you see on your handout that we talk about a lot here is theanthropic. Okay, now that's a big fancy word. The church is a theanthropic organism. The church is not an organization. An organization is dead. The church is an organism. It is alive. And what is the nature of that organism? It is theanthropic. Theanthropic has two words. The come from theos. Theos in Greek means God. Theology, study of God. Theos, God. Anthropic comes from the word anthropos, which means what? Anthropology is a study of humanity. Okay? 
or philanthropic means someone who is lover of mankind. So theos is God, anthropos means man. So the church is what? The church is not just divine. The church is not just human. The church is something divine in human form. Something divine in human form. Just like Jesus, when he was on this earth, was something or someone divine, but in human flesh. The church is the same way. Jesus, in human flesh, did he have weakness? Did he have imperfections in his human flesh? Was his human flesh perfect? Was human flesh perfect? No. If you cut Jesus' human flesh, you know what happened? He bled. That's not perfect. Jesus, Jesus got tired. Jesus got hungry. Jesus got thirsty. Jesus may have had a sniffles one time or allergies. I don't know. But what I'm saying is, in Jesus, what we had is perfect divinity in a flawed human body. And that's a mystery. And we don't understand how it works. And that's the same mystery of the church. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. St. Paul says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. We don't have a high priest who was perfect in the sense that he lived in an unflawed, unhuman body. We have a high priest who knows exactly what it's like to be tempted. He knows exactly what it's like to be fasting and hungry. He knows exactly what it's like to be thirsty and not have anything to drink. We know exactly what it's like to live as we lived on this earth because he lived in the same flawed body. But here's the thing. Because he was something divine in his human form, that divinity overpowered that humanity. Meaning what I mean by that is not overpowered in a way that it disintegrated it, but meaning that the frailty of the human body was overcome by the power of his divinity. That's why even when he died, he rose from the dead. So don't be fooled by when you see the miracles that Jesus did. Jesus did miracles, no doubt about it, but he was in a human, weak body, and that's what the church is. The church is something divine in flawed human beings. So I am not surprised, and you should not be surprised or offended when you see pride in the church when you see arrogance in the church, when you see mistakes, even by me, even by me, you are not surprised or offended by that because what I'm saying is the church itself is divine, but in human form. So sometimes in human form, there will be errors. Sometimes there'll be mistakes. Sometimes I will offend you. Sometimes you will offend me. That doesn't negate the, 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 what's really going on right here because what we have is something divine in flesh and blood because this is a living organism. Give you another verse right here, Ephesians 1.22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When Christ came to this earth, he united divinity and humanity. That's what we all talk about. He made the two into one is what we say. He united heaven and earth. How did he unite heaven and earth? He united heaven and earth by full divinity, come down and unite with flawed humanity. And I'm saying, if the church has no flawed humanity, then it is not uni unity of heaven and earth. Then it's just something heavenly and has no earth component, then none of us are saved and all of us are stuck. But the church is authentic because it is something divine in a human form. Now, with that said, what I want to say right now, the church something divine in human form, I want to spend the rest of our time here doing, 
is I want to say that that flawed form, okay, that's something divine, as long as we stick with the plan God has for his church, then that divine will always overpower this flawed. So even when there's flaws in the church, that even Jesus himself said, that even the gates of Hades should not prevail against my church. As long as we stick with God's plan for the church, and we see, God, what's your plan? And as long as we stick with his plan, then we know that even through our human frailty and weakness, my mistake and your mistake, my arrogance and your arrogance, my pride and your pride, my ego and your ego, as long as we stick with his plan, then this divine will come down in his human form and will find a way to lift it up, even though it's flawed. What is Christ's vision for the church? Not my vision. What's the vision of even before there was a church? What did God have in mind as he planned the church? I want to give you two ideas, two thoughts on that, and I could talk more, but just two thoughts. What does God prescribe for his church? This is not my vision. This is God's vision. I would say, number one, first and foremost, the church and God's vision is the eternal family of God. Eternal. That's why I said earlier that you can say the church started on Pentecost and it did in the shape that it is today. But really, the church is the family of God. It was even before Pentecost. Was Abraham not a member of the church? Abraham, beloved son of God, was not a member of the church. Moses was not a member of the church. David, man after my own heart, was not a member of the church. We look at the church as something before even the New Testament, before even Christ's incarnation. We believe that the church is something eternal. And being a church means the family of God. And I cannot date that to a specific time. It's the eternal family of God which existed from the very beginning. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 18 and 19. This is Old Testament, okay? This is before Pentecost. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people. That's the church. Telling the children of Israel, you are the church. You are my family. You, you are part of me. Just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments, that he will set you high above all nations, which he has made in praise, in name, and in honor, that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. Here's how I look at it, and I don't know if this is, is dogmatically correct, but it works in my head, so just stick with me. Look at humanity, humanity, mankind, not any individual man, mankind. Look at mankind, or the church, from the beginning, as a person. A person that was born, let's start with Abraham, okay? Because even we, technically we go back to Adam and Eve and Noah, but really human history is, is well documented from Abraham forward, okay? So let's kind of start right there. Time of Abraham, the church was an infant, was a newborn. So how did God speak to the church in those days? How did God speak to Abraham? God took Abraham by the hand. He says, Abraham, come with me. We're going to go to this land. Abraham said, no, but I don't want to leave. No, no, it's okay. I'll give you a cookie. Come with me. You're going to stay here, Abraham. You're going to be there. Stay there till I come back. Don't leave. God turned his back and the kid left. And God said, no, 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 don't do that. Because Abraham was just an infant. Humanity, the church was an infant. Church gets a little bit older. Moses comes around. Then we can say, let's say those are the, the toddler years. Okay, or maybe like the five, six-year-old, whatever, that, that kind of like old enough to start to learn how to obey. So what did God say? Now there's rules. Okay, now there's rules. Now there is, when you come home from school, you have to do one, two, three. And before you go to bed, make sure you brush your teeth and make your bed and do all kinds of stuff. I'm not making it before, but you know what I mean. And when you come home from school, you have to do your homework and whatever. And God started to give rules. That was the commandments. And he said, you guys, now 
you're old enough where you can take a little bit of responsibility on here right now. After Moses came the era of the prophets, we can say. And the prophets, they were tough. They were all, y'all have to repent or God will destroy. We call that the teenage years. And what do we parents do in the teenage years? When the kids are rebelling, we start, to, we start to offer consequences. And we say, if you do that, you will not stay under the roof of my house if you do that. And we know it's an empty promise like the video showed us at the beginning. And we know we're going to say that, and then they're going to come back. Okay, don't let the kids know this stuff. But that's what the era of the prophets was. And then Christ came. And when Christ came, he dealt now, not with an infant, not with a toddler, not with an adolescent, not with a teenager. He dealt with a semi-mature adult, a college student, maybe a graduate somewhere around there. And he said, look, before I used to tell you A, B, C, D, and these were the rules. Now I tell you, love one another. Before I told you, you're not allowed to pull your sister's hair. And you're not allowed to kick your sister in the shins. And you're not allowed to push your sister down the stairs. I told you these specifics of what you're not allowed to do. Now I tell you, love your sister. Before I told you, you cannot divorce. And you cannot uh, commit adultery. Now I tell you, if you even look lustfully, that's adultery. See how he, right? Isn't that what we do with our kids? We treat them, and then we treat them. And then eventually he sent us the Holy Spirit. You know what the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit is him saying, I raised you. Time for you to go get a job. Time for you to move out of the house. But don't worry. You move out of the house. I'm not going to see you on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm not going to be here when you wake up in the morning. But don't worry. I'm with you. Because I put myself inside you. And when the Holy Spirit came, he sent us out. He didn't send us out alone. So he gave us the helper, the comforter, to be with us. You see, humanity, the church, from the beginning, when you start to look at it as a person, not as individual persons, you start to see God's plan and his vision for who we are. We are one family. From Abraham to today is one family, but no family. Family is made of people, and people are not static. Families change. What does not change in a family? My family today is a lot different than it was 15 years ago. We married 15 years. I got a kid who's 11 and a kid who's 9. My family today is different than it was 9 years ago and 10 years ago and 12 years ago, and it'll be different from 12 years from now. But what's the one thing that's the same? What's the two things that's the same, actually? What's the two things the same? My father, father and mother. Those two things will never change. Agree? May have two kids, may have 10 kids, may have no kids. We may, whatever may come. But the father will always be the same and the mother will be the same. That's what makes the family, a father and a mother. Look at this. One of our, 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 our church fathers, named Cyprian, who lived back in the third century, said, he can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. We always look at the family of God as God is our father and the church is our mother. And what this, what this quote is saying right here is, is very simple. Let me say it another way. I say to Michael and Lizzie, you cannot have me as your father if you don't have Marianne as your mother. You cannot have Marianne as your mother if you don't have me as your father. Because we are together forever. And there's never going to be another father, another mother without us. So if you say I'm your father, but that's not your mother, then you're not in our family. And if you say that's your mother and I'm not your father, you're not in our family. And we say the same thing in the church. We know God is our father and the church is our mother. And it's always been that way. God the Father is our father and the church is our mother. And that's why we're never orphans in this world as Jesus promises. Okay? So that's number one. The church is not a limited or is not a, the church is eternal family of God. And number two thing I'll say is when it comes to the purpose of the church, why create the church? What's the purpose that it exists for? I would say this. The church exists for the purpose of salvation and healing of mankind. 
the church exists for the salvation and healing of mankind. Now this is one, I'm going to talk specifically about this in the final week, about how we view salvation versus maybe the modern view of salvation, but I'll give you a little sneak peek into it. Our understanding of salvation is not the way many people look at salvation today. And I've to if you're a member of this church, you've heard me speak about this. I always say, get rid of the word save. Remove that word from your dictionary because it's been abused and means different things to different people. Use the word instead healed because usually the word saved, we mean it in the mentality of I'm saved means I go to heaven when I die. I'm saved means I go to heaven when I die. And I absolutely, positively, without a shadow of a doubt, believe that salvation means you will go to heaven when you die. But I believe it means much more than that. Because I believe that I'm 39 years old. I don't know how many more years I got on this earth. But I believe that my salvation is just as important to me today as it will be if I live for another 40 years or 50 years or how many years. I believe it will be important to me then. But I believe it's just as important to me today. And I don't believe that my salvation has only to do with life after death. I believe it has to do with life here. I always say it this way. If the purpose of salvation is just life after death, just I go to heaven when I die, that's the equivalent of adopting an orphan from the street. And I say, why, why you adopt that orphan in the street? And I say, so that way when the orphan retires, he will have a nice fund in the bank. He'll have a nice 401k. My purpose in adopting an orphan is so that the two-year-old child is so that when he is 65, he'll have money in the bank. Is that the purpose of adopting a child? That when he's 65? Or is the purpose to help the kid out now? So he live a, a fun two-year-old and learn how to be a healthy three-year-old and learn how to, to make friends when he goes to preschool and, and, and to brush his teeth and all this stuff. And I'm, God said, I am not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. I didn't come for salvation just after death. I came for salvation before death as well as after death. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 10. He said, I have come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. This is a strange sentence. Jesus is saying, I have come they may have life. Who is he talking to here? Dead people or alive people? Like, Jesus didn't come to the grave and say, I have come that they may have life. He didn't come to the grave. He came to people living and say, I came so that you can live. And people would be like, but we are alive. What would Jesus say? No, you're not. You may be alive, but you're not living. You may be breathing, but that doesn't mean you have life inside you. Because I came to give you life. And the people look at me, look at him probably just the way you look at me right now. Like, what are you talking about? Jesus is making a distinction, saying there's a difference between just living and living healed. Someone who's living sick, someone who's living with, with all kinds of diseases, all kinds of ailments, that person's not really living. But the problem is this, is that when everyone else around me, if I woke up and from the day I was born, I limped, I limped, I limped. And I see everyone else around me is limping, is limping. And someone says, hey, I can heal you. I say, what, heal me what? So I can fix your limp. I say, what's a limp? I say, your leg don't work right. Yes, it does. Look at everybody else. It works just like mine. And that's the problem we have in the world today, is that the world lives sick with a disease, a sickness inside that Jesus came to heal. But because everybody else has the sickness, we don't even notice it. We say, when in Rome, everyone else is sick. And you say, what sickness are you talking about, Father Anthony? What's the sickness? Well, I'll tell you sickness. You don't need to look around very far to find the sickness. Go look in Orlando, Florida and tell me there's no sickness. And tell me what that guy did isn't a sign that there's a sickness. There's sickness inside humanity. Go look in uh, Sandy Hook, Columbine. There's sickness in the world. Go look in, in the Middle East. Go look what's happening in Syria. Go look, go look in the slums of Calcutta. Go look in the prisons of North Korea. 
I'll tell you what, forget about all this stuff. Go look in the mirror. Go look in your mirror. You'll see a temper that you can't control. You'll see addiction that you can't solve. You'll see a pride that you just can't get past. You'll see a, I can't say I'm sorry. Sickness. That's sickness. We weren't meant to live with bitterness, with grudge, with lust, with greed, with anger. That's not how we were meant to live. That's, we say no, but look, everyone else is greedy. And I say everyone else is sick. So everyone else is lust. Everyone else is sick. Jesus came to heal us of that sickness. And if Jesus is the good physician of our souls, our bodies, and our spirits, then you know what the church is? The church is the hospital where he practices on a day-to-day -day basis. John the Evangelist said it this way, 1 John 5, 12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's about as blunt as you can be. You say, I'm living fine. You say, no, you're not. You think you're living fine. But God meant for you to live up here. Above the sickness of sin. Above the problems. And the only way to find that cure, Jesus placed that cure in the church. Jesus placed that cure in the church. Now you say, How's the cure in the church? Again, I'm not getting to the details right here, but let me just give you a high level. Think with me here. That sickness came from what? What caused that sickness? The sickness, Adam and Eve were created a certain way. And then the fall of mankind, sickness entered in. What caused the sickness to enter into man? Okay, sin. But what I want to say is sin led to, sin led to death. Another way of saying death if he's the life, then death is. Oh, sorry. Let's go this way. Sin was caused by separation from God. Therefore, sin is cured by communion with God. Sin was caused when man disobeyed God, and man was then disconnected from God because he is the source of life. And someone said death. Okay, death is when I'm disconnected from the source of life. And because God is life, man had no life without God. When man was disconnected, led to the disease, led to the death. So what's the only cure? It's to be one with God again. That's why I tell you this. My job is not to cure you. One of the things, a little pet peeve of mine, when people say, what church you go to? I go to Father Anthony's church. No, you don't. You go to my church. I'm here today, gone tomorrow. I don't have one. Not my church. You tell Abraham and, and Isaac and those guys, welcome to Father Anthony's church. <laughs> I can't heal you. My words cannot heal you. Nothing I do for you can heal you. All I can do as your priest is hope to help you, like my job is to help you to commune with God, to unite with God. And I know that if you're united with God, you will be healed. It's not because of me, not because of anything I can do, because what he does. Because your problem is not that you're disconnected from me. The stuff that you see in the mirror comes because we're disconnected from God. Unless you think that it's just you, go back to this verse that I skipped over here from St. Paul. St. Paul said this, I, Romans 7, 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me. This is the man in the mirror that you should be looking at. 
the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. That's the sickness that exists in all humanity, even St. Paul, a great man. He said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What's the answer to that question? Someone answer that question. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus Christ will deliver me from that body of death. Where do I find it? I find him in the church. And it's through the church that I commune with him, that I unite with him, and he heals me from this body of death. Because sin was caused by separation from God, and therefore sin is cured by communion with God. Compare that, what I just said, to the modern mindset of the church today. We view church not as communion, not as healing. We view church as forgive me. We don't view church as I'm sick and I need healing. We view church as I'm bored and I need entertainment. We view church as I'm uh, struggling and I need somebody to help me. I need someone to help me and we make church all about me, 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 me. Imagine if we treated a hospital the way we treat a church. Hey, you got this sickness. You should go to the hospital. No, 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 no. I don't know. There's no parking there. Hey, the hospital, uh, whatever. No, no, no. The music in the lobby is really. Once they fix the music, then I'll, yeah. I don't like the snacks. Imagine if we treated a hospital for our bodies the way we treated the hospital for our souls. Church is not an optional. That's, that, that, that's what I want to change in your mind. The mindset of church as an optional event. I have Christ. What do I need the church? Church, yeah, if the preaching is good, I'll go. If my friends are there, I'll go. If it's sunny, I'll go. But when it's raining, I go. If it's Mother's Day, okay. Church is not an optional event. Church is not something that's nice. Church is the hospital for you. And I'll say this, that a Christian who believes in Christ without the church is the same as an orphan, the same as a child who was given birth by a, a parent and then left on a doorstep to raise himself. Christian without a church is like an infant without parents. <clears throat> Last verse, and then I give you a couple a quote here. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, shows us what the New Testament writers, the guys who had direct contact with Jesus, what did they think about the church? It says, therefore, take heed to yourselves. St. Paul's saying this. Okay, and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Don't worry about that part, okay? One of the second half. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, before this verse, if I had told you, what did Jesus purchase with his own blood? I say, Jesus shed his blood for the sake of, you would say, salvation. But here it says, for the sake of the church. So which one is it? Did he shed his blood for our salvation? Or he shed his blood for the sake of the church? I say yes to both. Because the two are one and the same to me. Because the church is our salvation. The church is the hospital by which the good doctor operates on us. And that, operate, and that doctor is Jesus Christ himself. He shed his blood for our salvation. I mean, for the church. I mean, for our salvation. Because the two are one and the same as far as. That was the mindset of the New Testament writers. That was the mindset of the people who knew Jesus face to face. Is that the church is for us. Not just an optional activity. But it is our salvation. Our goal in this series is to discover that. And I will point you to one reference, okay, that if you would like further, the reference that I'll be using, I'll be basing my, my talks for the next few weeks, is based on a book called Becoming Orthodox. Raise your hand if you've read this book. 
Okay, so some, but not, not everyone, okay? This is a great book. All right, you can find this on Amazon. There's a few copies back in the connection table if you want to grab one, all right? It's a book by a man named Father Peter Gilquist, okay, who departed and, and, and died a couple years back. His story is a great story, and I won't give it away. I'll just give you the highlights because I'd rather you read the story itself. Peter Gilquist was one of the founders of Campus Crusade for Christ. All of us who went to college here, we know about Campus Crusade for Christ. Very active, great organization. He was one of the founders of it. Him and a group of guys together, okay, they founded this. They were very active, and then one day they decided that they wanted to go on a journey, the same journey I'm talking about here. And they said, we're always talking about the New Testament church. I wonder if that New Testament church still exists today. And one of the quotes from the book, one of his partners, his name is Jack Sparks, is also now a priest. He said, everybody claims to be the New Testament church. The Catholics say they are. The Baptists say they are. The Church of Christ says it is and nobody else is. We need to find out who's right. That's what he says, not my words. And basically, Peter Gilquist, Jack Sparks, their little crew together, they took a several-month journey, and they divided it up. And they said, we're going to find the New Testament church that's written about in the Bible. And we want to uncover, does that still exist today? And they divvied up the work. They said, okay, you, you study, how did they worship in the early church? You study, how was the hierarchy in the early church? And you study, what was the view of priesthood and not priesthood? And they took all these different subjects, and they said, let's go study it, and let's come back. They put their notes together, and I'll give you the end summary of it. February 15, 1987, more than 200 evangelicals were baptized into the Orthodox Church, 60 of whom were baptized and then ordained as either priests or deacons to serve in the church. And then by the end of that year, by the end of 1987, those 200 individuals led their churches, okay, their flocks from before, and more than 2,000 people were baptized into the Orthodox Church coming from the evangelical church. Why? Why? Because what they discovered is they connected the dots. And they said, this church of the New Testament, they started to draw the dots. They started to draw the dots, draw the dots. And they found, you know what? It still does exist today. And it is the Orthodox Church. And it's not popular theory out there is the church was strong in the first century, kind of died for 1,500 years, and then re-came alive in the 15, 1600s. Okay, that, that popular belief is simply not true. The church never died. How can the church die? The church is God. How can the church, which she said, that never? how can the church die? The church never died. The church was alive. And if you connect the dots, you will see that the, all the dots lead to the Orthodox Church today. And it is my hope that we discover that same thing. I'm going to leave you all here with a quote from Father Theodore. And I'm going to struggle with this last name right here. Let's just call him Father Theodore and move on with our day. Okay? He said this. The Orthodox Church is the true church of God on earth and maintains the fullness of Christ's truth and continuity with the church of the apostles. And he automatically knows what you're thinking as soon as he says that. This awesome claim does not necessarily mean that the Orthodox Christians have achieved perfection, for we have many personal shortcomings. Nor does it necessarily mean that the other Christian churches do not serve God's purposes positively. For it is not us, up to us to judge others, but to live and proclaim the fullness of the truth. But it does mean that if one should say, not a, if one personally, if a person carefully examines, if a person, sorry, if a person carefully examines the history of Christianity, he or she will soon discover that the Orthodox Church alone is in complete sacramental, doctrinal, and canonical continuity 
with the ancient, undivided New Testament church. That's what we're looking for here. And I invite you to join me on the journey for the next several weeks. Write down your questions. Text them in. Give me a chance. Okay, you may disagree with what I'm saying right here, but give me a chance over the next few weeks and see if it doesn't change your view of this ancient church and how it fits in the modern world of today. Okay, let's stand for a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God, amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the church which you shed your blood for, which you brought us here today. Pray, Lord, that you would help us all to see clearly and to know what, what the church is for us and, and, and to lead us to the place that we can find healing for our souls, healing for our, our spirits, healing for what ails each and every single one of us here, which is the sin inside of us. Pray that you would help us to see what it is that you designed the church to be and, 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 and not our own idea of what we want it to be. Because we know, Lord, that only you know the path to healing, not us. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the prayers of all your saints. Hear us, Lord, as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.